else, go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 12. John 12, 20. We're going to look through six verses through 26. This is a pivotal moment in the ministry of Christ, and it seems like we've been saying that a lot as we get to the ends of chapter 11 and then beginning of chapter 12, but things keep crescendoing. They keep peaking right now because there's a big break coming in the gospel of John at the end of chapter 12, that that's a good halfway point where things begin to shift and the focus becomes a lot more zeroed in on the cross. And that's what's happening right now, where we're reaching a summit that can only lead downhill to the cross. And this naturally turns John's focus as the author of this gospel, inspired by the Spirit, towards eternity. It's moving that way and thinking. This is the supreme moment in all of biblical redemptive history is upon us. It's happening. And the tone is going to change in John's gospel right here from not yet to now is the time. We're going to actually see that happen this morning. And it's at this point in John's gospel that you could be asking, if you had just plopped this down in front of somebody and they start reading it and they get to this point, they've heard all of the, the, the preaching that Jesus has done. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the dialogues. They've gotten to observe all that he's done and the way that he's interacted. So you get to the point and go, okay, now so what? Well, so what do I do with this? How do I respond to Jesus? How am I supposed to react to this? What do I do? What happens in my life because of this? When I was working at Frontier Camp out in the middle of the East Texas Piney Woods, we'd go every Sunday, we'd go to First Baptist Grapeland, Texas. Now, I know you've all heard of that church. It's super internationally famous. It's so big. Uh, small little rural church, but they had a great preacher when we were there. His name was David Bradley. And he would at times come out to the camp and even help us as we're working as counselors on messages to the campers and things like that. And, and, then, uh, and one of the things that he would drive home to us is you say what you're going to say, you talk about the text, but then you get to the point of the so what? So what? Why does it matter? And even in his sermons, he would say that he'd, he'd get done talking, walking through verse by verse and looking at the text and all the grandeur of God in it. And then he would go, well, so what? What's the point? What do we do with this? How, how, do, we, how do we deal with these things? He had, he had a lot of great Baptist sayings, and he, he would get to that, so what? And then you'd know we're coming to a point. We're coming to think through, why does this matter? What, what are we going to do with this? That's where we're getting to in John's Gospels. And what's going to be interesting is that new characters are going to bring this about. People we have yet to see at all are going to show up. And they're going to bring the so what to come to bear. What do we do with this Jesus? We're going to be lovingly instructed by Christ, our good shepherd, in the way that we should respond to him. So we're going to break our text down into three sections. 20 through 22 is Jesus is to be sought. 23 through 24, Jesus is to be revered. And then 25 through 26, Jesus is to be followed. Jesus is to be sought, revered, and followed. This passage is supposed to be attention-grabbing. Th these are the final words, these and then the, the rest in chapter 12, that he's going to say outside of the upper room. 
because once the chapter ends, it's all upper room from then on with just the disciples. This is the final one. So we need to see and feel a bit of the, uh, the electricity going on in this moment. So verses 20 and following. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, remember what just happened. The triumphal entry just happened. It's at Passover time. There's hubbub. So now among those who went up to worship at the feast of the Passover were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The Pharisees' nightmare is coming true. What did they say in the previous verses? Look what you've done. You haven't done anything. The whole world is going out to Jesus. And then you see these Greeks, foreigners, coming to see Jesus. The Pharisees' worst nightmare is actually happening to them. But who are these people among those who went up to worship? So the best we can tell is that these Greeks are proselytes. Now, a proselyte is somebody who, under the Old Covenant, converts to what we would call Judaism, but faithful Judaism. But since they're probably on the outside of the inner part of the temple, they're in the court of the, of the Gentiles. This is where Gentile could go. Probably means that the men of this group were uncircumcised. They hadn't wholesale fully gone into Judaism, but they were what um, the book of Acts would call God-fearers. They fear God. They, 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 want, they know that he's the one true God, and they're trying to figure these things out. So they're not fully received in Judaism, but we do note their humility. Look at how they come. Do they come directly to Jesus? No, they go to Philip. They say, Philip, hey, sir. It's, it's the Greek word for Lord. This is a humble, sir, we wish to see Jesus. It used to be an old tradition that in pulpits that there would be a, a plaque or a ribbon across the top right here. And it would, and it, in, the, in the King James, it would say, sir, we would see Jesus. So that the preacher every week would know that's who you're here to talk about. That's, who, that's what everybody came to hear. They didn't come to hear you. They came to see Christ. And that, that used to be something that was stamped on there. If anybody knows a good plate-making group, I want one right here. That's just a side issue. It's a good reminder. But that's their request. They're humbly. They're coming to Philip. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Just hat in hand. We know he's, pro he's over there. We can see him. We're going to come to you first. And can you... Can you get us an audience? And wish to see, that word to see in the original language is, is not just we want to observe him. Hey, can you, everybody move so we can get a look at him? These are not gawkers. They want to, they want to sit down. This is an interview. This is a discussion they want to have with Jesus. Now, what does Philip do? Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So Philip gets this. And then he goes to Andrew. Now, why would they go to Philip of all people? Well, Philip's name is actually, that's a, that's a Greek name, but Philip's not a Greek himself. There were plenty of people who were Jewish who had Greek names at the time. And Andrew also has a Greek name. Andrew is a Greek name. And he's from Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. There's a big outpost of Greek, Greek meaning just Gentiles, people who are not Jewish that lived in that area. Maybe they think, hey, this guy's got a Greek sounding name. We know he's kind of from that area. Maybe we're from that area. Uh, so they go to him. But then Philip, what is he? He's like, ah, I don't know. I'm going to go ask Andrew. What does Andrew think? And you wonder, why does Philip go and ask Andrew? 
why, what's the hesitation there? Well, if you've read the Synoptic Gospels, you've seen Jesus say in Matthew 10, 5 through 6, the 12 that Jesus sent out, instructing them, saying, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Later in Matthew, Matthew 15, 24, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Philip's like, man, these Greeks come and they want to see Jesus. And Jesus has been telling us that he's here to talk to the Jewish people. But earlier, John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will have, listen to my voice, we'll be one flock with one shepherd. So Philip's like, ah, I'm in a bit of a theological quandary here. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm not talking to Gentiles, but I'm also gathering them in. And so he just like, ah, I need a second opinion. <laughs> I'll go talk to Andrew. And what does Andrew always do? He takes everybody right to Jesus. We saw in chapter one, right? Andrew takes uh, his brother Peter to Jesus. We saw that in chapter six, right? Andrew takes the little boy with the fishes and loaves right to Jesus. So now he's like, well, Andrew thinks it. Let's just take him right to Jesus. And so that's what Andrew does. They went to Jesus. Now, what's interesting to note is that these Greeks have no demands. They're not skeptics looking for proof. They seem to want Jesus himself, not what Jesus can do for them. They really want him. And, and it's never recorded that Jesus actually sees them. It says that Philip and Andrew go and tell Jesus. But that's not the point of this passage that Jesus talks to these Greeks. They never actually maybe get to talk to him, it seems like. But Jesus is going to use their honest, humble inquiry as a jumping off point to what he's really set to talk about at this moment in his life. So these are genuine seekers. And how do we know that they're seeking Jesus genuinely? Because they want him at all. So these are not even all the way converted to Judaism because they're not inside the, the, the dividing wall where circumcised people could go. So they're still, they're not even all the way committed to, to God, but now they want to come to Jesus. Something's changed in these people. That's why we know that they are the true seekers. They're humbly, unpresumptuously, they want, to, they want to talk to Jesus, not gawk at, not have him fix their broken leg or hand them some free food. They really want him. And so then what does Jesus say? He's, a, he's to be sought. And now we're going to see that he is to be revered. And Jesus answered them, them meaning Andrew and Philip. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Our seeking of Jesus, if it's genuine, it will lead to reverence. It will lead to a revering of Jesus. Because we know we're coming to him as desperate sinners who have no hope. And we know that he is the one, the only one who has blazed a trail. The trail that actually leads to the home of God where you were welcomed there. He's the only one who can offer that kind of hope. There's one path, one narrow way that leads to heaven. And he's the only unshakable, invincible dispensary of that hope. Knowledge of who he is and what he's done, it should lead us to reverential awe. Jesus knew the cost of redemption, that it cost him his life. And yet he walked up to the register and paid it in full, voluntarily, on his own. 
That's the reverence that we should have. And Jesus is going to explain that mostly in verse 24. But we see in 23, him signifying the shift. He doesn't respond directly to the Greek's request. Doesn't he typically do this? You ask a question, a situation comes up, and Jesus doesn't really even address what it is on the surface. He goes much deeper into what's really needing to happen or what really is the heart issue, what's really going to be the blessing and the benefit to the people and the glory of God. It never records that he actually ever speaks to these Greeks or answers their question, but here's the question that we should ask. These Greeks want to see him, and then Jesus says in response to that, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What? What's the response? Did the Gentiles coming to Jesus signify something? Was it a trigger for something? Have we reached a moment in redemptive history that now the hour has come? Because if you remember, John 2, 4, John 7, 6, John 8, 20, among several other places in John, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. The wedding at Cana, confrontation with the Pharisees, or it says that he wasn't able to be arrested because his hour had not yet come. So throughout the whole book until right now, it says the time is not yet now. But these Greeks come, Philip and Andrew say, hey, they want to talk to you. He doesn't even honor that with a response. He just says, the hour has come. Now is the time. Is that what happened? A lot of commentators believe that to be true, and I can't help but see it any other way, that that's the trigger for the first advent coming to an end. Gentiles now want him. Gentiles are coming as a group. It just says the Greeks are coming. And now it's time to march directly to the cross. He doesn't give Philip and Andrew an answer either. Like, what do we, do we go back and tell them? Like, is this what we're supposed to relay? He doesn't say any of that. The point of Jesus' ministry is not that he's meeting with every request, even from genuine, humble, honest people, well-intended inquirers. The point of Jesus' ministry was to fulfill the law and go to the cross that he might be able to offer salvation, that he might be able to declare the truth and all who love the truth would come to him. As we'll see John 18, that he tells Pilate that right out. That's the point, making manifestly available the gospel that saves souls from the hell that they deserve. That's why he was here. So he's changed from my time has not yet come to my time has now come. And he says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite terminology, talking about himself, particularly talking about himself as the crucified one in the Gospels. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But I thought we haven't gotten to the cross yet, so what do you mean glorified? When we think of glorified, we think of heaven. We think of, of that part. Like he, he, after the cross, after the resurrection, after the 40 days of being on earth and meeting with all those people, then he ascends. That's the glorification. But he says the time has come to be glorified. But what we miss often is that the triune God has seen fit in his own wisdom to be glorified by the second member being on the cross. That brings glory to him. Certainly the ascension is glory but being glorified. And we would see that as the most inglorious, disdainful moment of Jesus' life. That's the humiliation moment. What we don't want to look at, it's hard to see and to focus on. But Jesus is saying that moment is glory. 
the cross itself is glory. Certainly it leads to greater glory now because he is the redeemer of all of humanity. Now all of the Old Testament saints who are waiting in some sort of uh, Abraham's bosom or what we would call limbo, but not like limbo the way that we normally define, they all get rushed into the presence of the Father because the debt has finally been paid. That moment is glory. Now does this ring true in any other realm of existence that death comes life? That defeat comes victory? Is that how sports work? Yeah, you went 0-12, but here's your trophy. You're, I mean, that kind of how it is today in our lives. Uh, but sadly, it shouldn't be that way. Does the army that gets obliterated win the war? Does that ever happen in those ways? Why would God do it like this? If you think about it, there is no possible way for any glory to go anywhere else but to the one true God of the Bible when you bring life through death, that you go to defeat to claim ultimate eternal victory. Who else could possibly share in that glory? Who else could possibly say, ah, you get a little bit of credit for that? This is the way that God will be totally and exclusively glorified. And then he illustrates himself and the crucifixion in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He gives this illustration. And we are not agrarian, so we got to explain. The, this culture in the first century would have completely understood that illustration because you live and die by seeds and crops. We live and die by Starbucks and Kroger. So we got to go back to the first century to understand what is really going on. If a seed doesn't cease to be a seed, then nothing happens, right? So that one seed that falls off that, that shock head of wheat, if that you just keep that in a bowl on your countertop, it remains a seed. It remains unharmed. It's still there. It's right there in all of its seedly glory. But it doesn't multiply, does it? That seed has to go into the dirt, cease to become a seed, and then become a plant. That can then multiply out. If that seed doesn't die to being a seed, then nothing else comes from it. It stops right there. That's the end. There's nothing else that comes from that seed. One seed dying and ceasing to be what it was brings exponential fruit, exponential good. I mean, think about like one apple tree with the seeds inside the apple. That one seed inside of one apple, and there's a dozen or so seeds inside each apple, has got to go into the ground. And then what can come from that seed? An entire new tree scattering more apples every year with way more seeds. So the multiplication factor, but if you take that seed, leave it on the counter, then it, it's never harmed. And nothing ever bad befalls it, but it remains a seed. And that's all there is of it. Nothing else comes from it. So can we see the illusion that Jesus is obviously making here, right? That Jesus dying leads to untold numbers of people gaining eternal life. Like a seed has to die to cease to be a seed in order for more multiplication of fruit to come. Jesus dies and untold numbers of people gain eternal life. If he refuses to die then there is no redemption fruit. There is nothing that comes from that seed who is to be, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. 
He's got to, to die. He remains a magnificent seed if he doesn't, but no other life comes from it. And remember, John's already told us this, right? John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven and feeds everybody forever. I have to come down to where you are to feed everybody. And doesn't Caiaphas remember his prophecy that he didn't know was really a prophecy in John chapter 11? He goes, hey guys, it's okay for one guy to die for the rest of everybody else to live. John's already been laying the groundwork for this, and then Jesus brings up this illustration all on his own. And do you see the definite nature of it? But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It does bear fruit. Jesus' death on the cross is not something that made salvation potential. It made it actual. So what you would call uh, particular redemption, definite atonement, that Jesus dies and it actually does something. He really does bear fruit. There's no possibility of him not bearing fruit. This is how R.C. Sproul described it in his commentary. He says, it's not as if our Lord went to the cross, rose from the dead, returned to heaven, took a seat on the 50-yard line to observe the consequences of his actions, saying, oh, I hope somebody takes advantage of what I did and is saved. That's not what happens. Jesus is speaking in definite language. He is a king building a kingdom. He's not trying to. He's accomplishing the building of that kingdom. His is a kingdom that begins with a crucifixion, though, and not a coronation. That's backwards. His reign, the reign of this king, begins with the death of the king? That doesn't make a lot of sense in our modern-day novels and stories and movies and dramas, but nevertheless, that is the majestic paradox of what Jesus is laying out to his people. So he is to be revered, he's to be sought, to be revered, and now we will see him explain that he is to be followed. Whoever loves his life, Jesus continues, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's not enough to be drawn to Jesus, to have reverence for Jesus. The true mark of a Christian is a changed life. A true disciple copies his teacher. A true servant follows his master. The illustration then you see in verse 25 jumps from Jesus to us. Whoever loves his life, whatever seed clings to being a seed and refuses to die and cease being a seed, he's going to lose that life. But whoever hates his life, and when we see love and hate, why is Jesus being so drastic there? This is a Semitic idiom, a Hebrew turn of phrase. So it's not like a hate, like an active disdain. I don't like my life to the point where we would say that's suicidal. We're not talking like that. It's just in a, I don't love as much. Like when you're going into a store and you say, oh, I love that. Well, I don't love that. You don't like have active disdain for that shirt or that dress or whatever it is. That's what Jesus is saying. Like in comparison, love and hate for your life. He's, he's transitioning the illustration from himself to his followers. If you're going to cling to this, if you're going to cling to the world, to who you are, to what you have, everything that you are right now, then you will lose all of that. But if you let it all go, if you cease to cling to your seedliness and die, then you gain everything. Matthew 10 39, Jesus says it in, the, in a similar way. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Luke 17, 33, Jesus says it another way. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This seems so backwards, but nevertheless, it's just a continuation of that majestic paradox that Jesus dies and it brings life. The king dies and yet he reigns forever. We die to what we are and the life that we have now. We gain life, unending life that is perfect. In order to be saved, we have to be totally changed. We must die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. We cannot keep our old life and gain the new life. You can't remain a seed and then also become a plant. You can't be an apple seed and an apple tree. It's got to be one or the other. And in order to become an apple tree, you've got to die to be in a seed. You've got to let it all go. So you cannot love this world and be saved from it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in James 4.4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship or love with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God doesn't let his enemies into his kingdom. John, elsewhere in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you don't have the love of the Father in you, then you cannot be in the presence of the Father in glory. Jesus says, we read John, or Luke 17, 33 a minute ago. The previous verse, Luke 17, 32, Jesus says this three-word sentence, remember Lot's wife. When talking about this issue of letting go of the world and embracing eternal life, letting go of this life and living for the next, what did Lot's wife do? Well, if you're unfamiliar, Lot uh, was Abraham's nephew. And in Genesis 19, he lives in the town of Sodom and Gomorrah that has become so wicked, so perverse, so immoral that God's going to destroy it as an example of his judgment upon all people in a minute area, just one little region. And Abraham prays for his nephew to be saved, and so God allows Lot and his family to be saved, his wife and two daughters. And this is the instruction in Genesis 19:17 that the angels who are coming and telling them to get out of town, it says this, and as they brought them out, one said, one of these angels said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Don't look back. And that's not just like a, oh, man, I tripped. I'm looking back. Oh, it was an accident. It's a longing. I wish I was still there. I can't believe that bad stuff is befalling the place that I love, where my heart really is. And we see Genesis 19, 26, but Lot's wife behind him as they're running out of town looked back, and she became pillar of salt she loved the world if a seed insists on staying a seed it will never become a plant ever and if it never becomes a plant then it's just going to be eaten by birds isn't that what happens in Jesus' illustration of the, the soils that the, the seed that just stays out on the path exposed what happens to it it just gets eaten by birds one who will not submit to letting go of this world can never be saved 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says about his friend Demas. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He loved this world, so he abandoned the people of God, abandoned hope. And there's this perfect illustration of this in a narrative form. Most of the Bible is written in narrative form, stories, because we resonate with that. We, we are people. Stories make sense to us. Hear then the story of Simon the magician in Acts 8, 9 and following. But there was a man named Simon 
who had previously practiced magic in the city and the people of and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. This man is the power of God. They're saying about this pagan magician. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So these people all get converted to Jesus, to the gospel, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Seems like a great day for the ministry of Philip in the region of Samaria. Even the town witch doctor, he gets converted, and he's saved, and he's following you guys around. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the people at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So, hey, what do you mean those Samaritans can become Christians? I don't know about that. Peter and John, y'all go check it out and make sure it's for real. Make sure that this is authentic. So they go. They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the magician that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, Great, man, it's 20 bucks. No, verse 20, but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. You die with your money, is what Peter said. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter. You aren't anything to do with the things of the Lord Jesus. That's what he says to this guy, who was baptized and who said he believed. For your heart is not right before God. Verse 22, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me that the Lord, that nothing that you said may come upon me. So this man, he said, yes, I believe in you, Lord Jesus. I got baptized. I'm following the apostles around. Whoa, you guys have power. You can do cool stuff. I want to do that. He loves this world. He used to be called great. He used to be revered by the people. He used to be said of him that the, he is the power of God. And I can get that back. There's a new show in town. And if I buy their tricks, then I can use them when they leave and I'm back on top. I love this world. He refused to die to being a seed. He wanted to have a, be a seed and a plant. And Peter says, you can't do both. You're going to die with your money if you're unwilling to repent. Why was Jesus so drastic with love your life and hate your life? Because it's on purpose. Calvin says it like this. He says the latter clause was added by Christ in, the, in that verse in order to strike terror into those who are too desirous of the earthly life. For if we are overwhelmed by the love of the world so that we cannot easily forget it, it is impossible for us to go to heaven. These are heavy words. Jesus says in verse 25, if you love this life, you will lose it. But what's the other side? If you hate this life in this world, you will keep it for eternity. Eternal life. If you're willing to hand it over, to give it up, to let it go, 
then what do you get in return? Not just misery and sadness. You get eternal life. Life unending. Whatever you think it is now, it's unending and it's exceedingly growing on the other side of the Jordan. <laughs> Illustration for this that I could think of that was best like, uh, of the, is just from Pilgrim's Progress. Every time I read Pilgrim's Progress, all I think of is, you can't say the illustration better than this. That should be the only book we illustrate from. It's so good. But there's this moment in the second part of the book. So the first part is the husband, Christian. He's, it's his journey all the way to the celestial city. Second part is the wife, Christiana, and her kids, her four sons, they're going to the celestial city. They now receive Christ, and now they're walking the pilgrim's life. And there's this one moment where they're at this guy's house. His name is the interpreter. Everybody has these, these big names that are trying to give it away, like what they do. And so he takes her to a room, Christiana, in the house to see this man sitting on the floor with a muck rake. And he describes it like this. There was a man that could look no way but downwards. He can only look down with a muck rake in his hand. There stood also one over his head with a celestial crown in his hand and offered him that crown for his muck rake. But the man did neither look up nor regard him but raked to himself the straws, the small sticks, and the dust of the floor. So he's down on the ground with a rake, just pulling little stubble, dirt, grime, all to himself, piling it up because that's what he's obsessed with. But there's somebody standing over him, offering him his crown, the crown of eternal life. So then they explain what he saw. He and his muckrake does show his carnal mind, his unconverted mind. Whereas you see him rather give heed to rake up straws and sticks and the dust of the floor than to do what he, meaning God, says that calls him from above with the celestial crown in his hand. It is to show that heaven is but a fable to some and that things here are counted the only things substantial. Now, whereas it was also showed you that the man couldn't look no way but downwards, it is to let you know that earthly things, when they are with power upon men's minds, quite carry their, head, their hearts away from God. Then Christiana says, oh, deliver me from this muckrake. That's what Jesus is saying in this moment. He's saying, let go of the muckrake and look up at the crown that's being offered to you. Why are you pulling together piles of straw and sticks, stubble, dirt, and rocks, you're being offered a crown of eternal life. Look up. But when you're obsessed with this down here, you can't look up. This is all that there is. And Jesus says that you, you will have eternal life. And if you serve me, verse 26, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. True servants must follow. They do. And where is he going? following him. This is a great verse. And we, we say follow Jesus. It means like we're just going to walk down the beach and eventually just float up into the sky. But Jesus is talking to real people in real time. Where is he going? What's the next thing on the docket? The Via Dolorosa, the path of suffering that leads to Golgotha's hill where he dies. That's what you're being asked to follow him. Take up your cross and follow me. Luke 9, 23, and Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Matthew 10, 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not asking them and following him, just you're going to have to have a bit of a bummer. Like it's just going to be a little bit inconvenient for at times. What, what is a cross? We have, we have one. Some of us are wearing a cross. What is it? It's an execution tool, right? That would be like if we had a guillotine around our neck. Or we have a hypodermic needle with the lethal injection on the wall. I mean, that's what the cross is. That, that, that's all that it stood for. It, it wasn't like when we say, ah, it's my cross to bear, what do we mean? Uh, I, I have weak ankles. Oh, my cross to bear, ah, I get the flu a lot. My cross to bear, oh, my kid's a little wild. But they understood what he's talking about. Come and die. A humiliating criminal's death. Come and be killed. Take up your cross and follow me doesn't mean like, hey, it's going to be hard. There's some difficulties. No, it's come and die. It's a call to come and die. Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm dying. I'm heading that way. And if you're with me, you're going to follow me all the way there. That's the path. And it's interesting in the book of, I didn't think about this till right now. But in Pilgrim's Progress, the whole thing starts at the cross. That's where the pathway starts. You go through a slew of despond, and then you go through the gate, and then right there is the cross. That's where the whole thing starts, and then the rest of the book flows from there. You die, and then you follow. And this is not without reward, though. It is what true servants do. But what does it say? Where I am, there will my servant be also. He is going to be on the cross, but is he there? How long is he there? A couple hours. Where is he forever? Seated at the right hand of the God of heaven. We're promised to be with Christ where he is. So we share in his sufferings and death, absolutely. But also his life and his exaltation. Romans 6, 3 through 8. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's what we're talking about right now. We were baptized, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, something is coming after that, that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, so we shared that death, we walked that road, we carried that cross, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And where did he get resurrected to? Glory with the Father. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It's worthless. It's, in, it's ineffective. It can't do anything to you so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The bonds are broken. We are free. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's the other side of it. And that's not all even. Look at what Jesus ends the sentence with. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It would have been enough to just be where Jesus is. We would have taken that deal. <laughs> that, that, that's better than anything we should ever have expected or ever merited. But beyond that, what do we get? The Father is going to honor you or me? If anyone serves me, if anyone follows me, then the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, will turn and honor you. 
All that we do here, all that we undertake here on this life, every single week when we gather to worship, when we live lives of worship, is honor the Father. But when we're with Jesus where he is, the Father is going to turn and honor us. Could there be anything more benevolently backwards than that? Imagine that. Honored by the Father, the God of all glory, will turn and honor all who hate their lives in this world. All who lose, give up, turn over, let go of their lives in this world. The Father's going to honor those people. Because doing that, doesn't that accumulate for us massive amounts of dishonor? Living like Christ, we look foolish. Particularly now, in our day, we look extremely foolish. Wasting our time, religious zealots, science deniers, fools, bigots. We get a lot of scorn, a lot of hatred, a lot of vileness. But what if you knew the God of heaven and earth, the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God of all goodness, justice, and mercy, is going to turn one day and honor you? You. Doesn't that outweigh the whole thing? The Father's going to honor me. We don't deserve reward or honor. Nevertheless, the merciful, loving God of all creation is going to turn and honor us. There's one guy in the Gospels that Jesus, in a, in a parable or in a real life, calls a fool. It's in Luke 12. We don't have time to read the whole story, but you know it. The fool says, I got all this money and all this stuff, and I got all this grain. I don't have a big enough barn for it. You know what I'll do? I'll build bigger barns. That way I'll have more clout and power and prestige and my life will be so secure. And I'll be able to say what he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You have made this life your best life. And the only one in all four gospels that Jesus calls a fool is that guy. Because you, you put everything, you invested everything into this life. And Jesus just spent all of his time saying, lose this life. Hate this life. Turn it over. Let it go. Give it up. That's the one that the Father honors. The one who invests in this life and pours everything into this life. That's the one that God calls a fool. Your life is required of you right now. Now it's gone forever. And your barns are going to be somebody else's. We pursue the honor of the Father not the honor of man. Because the fact is, I heard this said by a pastor. He said 25 years from now, 50 years from now, 75 years from now, somewhere in that age bracket, all of us are going to stand before Jesus. Whether he comes here, we go there. And the only thing that's going to matter is, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The only thing that's going to matter is where were you investing? What, what were you putting your hope on? That life or this one? And this, this concept is so foreign to us because we live in an age that will not put off gratification. We, we won't delay it. We want it now. I'm hot, turn the AC down to 60. I'm cold, turn the heat up to 90. This water, oh, I can't step in this clean water that's rushing down the drain that lots of people all over the world would love to drink, but it feels a little bit too cold for me. So I'm not getting in until it changes. My internet has been buffering for 10 seconds. I can't wait for this. We, we can't put off gratification of any kind. And, and it's hard to see in our day and age. But when I saw it uh, in a primitive culture, it dawned on me, that's me. 
when we went to the jungles of Papua New Guinea, my wife and I on a mission trip, we were landed on a grass airstrip out where there is nothing, nothing but these people, this tribe. We get out there, and I'm like, man, this grass airstrip, how do they keep it mowed? <laughs> you got to have a mower, and there is no gas station out here. So you get a mower out there, but who cares? You don't have gas to mow. They're like, well, you know, one time we had a cow, the missionaries told us. And we just kind of fenced off the um, airstrip, and we're going to have one cow just slowly back. And then we'll never have to feed it because it's just one cow eating the airstrip. That's great. And I was like, well, what happened to the cow? Ah, two months in, they killed it and ate it. And then we get out to the we get out to the tribe. We have to hike up, you know, for an hour to get to where they actually live, away from the airstrip. And then they had one little pig just running back and forth in the village. And I was like, we're staying in this amazing hut that they built with no power tools that I couldn't even imagine building with power tools and a contractor. And I'm like, why don't they just build a pen for the pig and keep it instead of having to chase that joker all over the place? And they were like, they, they just. They just don't do that. And, and they say, one time we, we found them and they had caught a pregnant sow. And we told them, hey, don't eat it. Wait, and you'll have 16 new pigs that you can raise and then eat them. And then just keep the cycle going. And they're like, nah, the babies taste too good. So we're going to eat them right now. And then I was like, well, what, what is going on? They're like, yeah, sometimes they'll even, they won't even climb up a banana tree. They'll just cut the whole thing down. Instead of cultivating it and building ladders and then you know my capitalistic american mindset's like well that's wrong they gotta figure it out how to cultivate and do agriculture and all these kind of things and and then i just it just turned into me it's like that's what i do constantly all the time i want it now whatever it is i want it now and what we're being commanded to do is don't do that with your life don't don't say this is as good as it's going to get this is all that i'm after is this right here and refuse to cease to become a seed and become a plant. We're being asked to just hand over your muck rake. Yeah, you can scrape up all the things that you want right now, but all it is is wood and hay and stubble and rocks and dirt. Hand it over, and what do you get? A crown, the crown of eternal life. Jesus is pleading with these people. These Gentiles who show up had no idea that they were going to spark this conversation. Nevertheless, that is what Jesus wanted to say. So that's what we're commanded to do. Revered and followed all the way to where we are in the same place as him and his father will honor us for merely being in Christ. What an unfathomable mystery. Let's pray. Father, we think of Jesus speaking these words, and when we slow down and ponder them, we're simultaneously humiliated and elated. We see so much of the love of this world in our own hearts. We cling to it. We, we, we get upset about things that are beyond temporary. Lord, we, if we went around the room and spent time confessing that we would never leave this building, so we're humiliated in that sense, but we're elated because what you didn't say through your son was fix all that and then we can come to you. You said, just give up this life. Turn to Christ, repent and believe. We, we don't have to purge ourselves. We don't have to unrake all of the muck that we've piled up. All you've told us to do is just drop the rake and receive the crown. 
so we're elated. We're overjoyed. And Father, may we, we, we be in the world like that without disdain or hatred for those who are in their own little corners forced to look downward and raking up their own piles of dirt or that we would joyfully come to them and say, just let go, drop the rake, claim the crown of Christ. Lord, and we are, we're laid out humble, flat on the floor that you would say that you would honor us. We know that we're dishonorable. We know that we, on the way here, snapped at the kids this morning or yesterday or we're going to do it this afternoon. And we know that we've been short. We know that we have been impatient. We know that we have been uh, totally impetulant. But yet you will honor us for hating this life and for gaining the next. Well, what kind of God are you? What kind of God are you that you, grant, you claim victory through defeat, that you offer life through death? That, that makes no sense to us, which proves that this is not a religion, this is not a faith, this is not a book that somebody just made up, that this comes to us directly from on high, from your throne down to us. And so we worship. We worship with gratitude and thanksgiving. We serve. We alter our lives. We change our schedules with food and thanksgiving, not out of servile fear and begrudging duty, out of just great joy for what you have given and what you have promised. May we live a life that is truly pleasing to you, and may you please be gracious to open our hands and release our grip on this world. And when we reclose our hands and regrip it, please be gracious and faithful to open our hands, even when we scream and even when it hurts. Open and let it release. We know that that is for your ultimate glory and our ultimate good. So we thank you for that. Be pleased as we sing one more time this morning and partake of your supper. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.